Well, it's so good to be back together with you. Let's pull out our Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. That's on page 952 of the Pew Bible, I believe. This is the text that Pastor Solomon Lou assigned to me at the beginning of this six weeks, and it's a privilege to be sharing it with you this morning. If you're able, would you stand? Let's read God's Word aloud together. We're reading uh, Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15 down to verse... 21. When, I'm done, when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Be careful, then, how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times, and for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. So let's leave our Bibles open, uh, if you would, as we walk through this. I want to look particularly at three phrases in verse 21. St. Paul writes, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's begin in the middle. Uh, Who are the one another's about whom the apostle writes? Uh, Well, I'd like to suggest to you that they are divided one another's, in fact, in Ephesus in that day. Uh, They're divided by ethnicity. If you read the letter to the Ephesians carefully, you will not notice that Paul speaks at times of a you and a we. You and we. You and we. And he's speaking of an ethnic uh, division that in his terms he would refer to as Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile. Gentile is a Greek word for the Hebrew concept of every other nation, ethnos, from which we get our English word ethnicity. Uh, He's acknowledging that division in Ephesus, very cosmopolitan, perhaps the third largest city in the Roman Empire at that time. Uh, There are different ethnicities there. Actually, Paul, as as you may recall, is Jewish. And so when he writes to a primarily Gentile or non Jewish, church, he's writing as a minority participant in this community to a majority, a a collection of non-Jews. But I think they're not so much divided by ethnicity, really, uh, which is a gift, as they are by uh, culture. Sometimes there are problematic elements to culture, as there are in this setting. There is anti-Semitism in Ephesus. We can be assured of that. The letter that Paul writes, he writes somewhere around AD 61, 62, just a decade earlier, the emperor of Rome, Claudius, made a famous edict to expel all Jews from Rome. This was a shrewd political move for somebody who was trying to maintain his power over uh, an intrinsically anti-Semitic city and empire. 
and that anti-Semitism was present in the churches to whom uh, Paul writes as he writes his letter. That's the culture of anti-Semitism. You can see this reflected in the letter if you look back to chapter 2, verse 11. Notice the quotation marks in translation. Paul does not want to grant the truth of the narratives that are out there, but he does acknowledge that there are narratives. So he says there are those who are called the uncircumcision. Those are Gentiles. And then there are those who are called the circumcision. Not very nice terms, but oftentimes this is what happens when cultures are divided. We reduce one another to these simple facts, and then we come up with stereotypes and labels for one another. And we say, oh, the so-called circumcision or the so-called uncircumcision. It's clear there's a cultural divide. One of my favorite writers, David Foster Wallace, tells a story uh, about two fish. And the fish are swimming along, young fish, one day. And as they swim, an older fish passes in the other direction. And the older fish says to the young fish, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two fish reply, fine, and they swim on. After they've gone some distance past the older fish, one turns to the other and says, what in the world is water? (laughs) Now, David Foster Wallace tells us that in this little parable, water is culture. It's the thing that you grow up in. It's the thing that has interpenetrated your being. It's the thing that shapes you, but it's the thing you cannot see. So David Foster Wallace notes the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and to talk about. Culture. Let me read that again. The most obvious and important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and to talk about. Culture. See, there are different ways that people will eat and talk and even think. And culture is hard to talk about, not just because we can't see it, but because culture is the thing by which we see everything else. It's so central to the way we see life. Well, it's not just that the Ephesians were divided by culture. Today, we are divided by culture in America as well. And I remind you how Kindred began, that it began in the summer of 2016 with a sermon by Reverend Aaron Williams preached at Mount Zion Baptist Church. Do you remember that first week in July when the news was just horrendous? There were four officer-involved shootings in America, Alton Sterling on Tuesday, Philando Castile on Wednesday, Adam Smith, Vincent Ramos on Thursday, and then Friday the next day, five Dallas police officers lost their lives. Lauren Ahrens, Michael Kroll, Michael Smith, Brent Thompson, Patrick Zamaripa, just torn apart as a nation. And I wish you could say things have changed, but you don't have to look farther than the headlines from last week when a security officer in Chicago trying to do his job, uh, African-American, is shot by white police, Jamel Robertson. Or even across the lake, uh, just a couple days ago, Byron Raglan doing his duty to bring a mother and a child together in a yogurt store is asked to move on. We're divided as a culture in America today. Yet the good news 
of St. Paul is that God has a plan to bring unity. And he's a plan to bring unity in Jesus Christ. If we turn back again to chapter 1 and verse 10, we see the kind of centerpiece or linchpin of this entire letter where Paul says, God has a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. This is a cosmic unity, Paul's saying. It is coming in Jesus Christ. It's a unity between God and human beings. It's a unity between you and me. It's a unity between Jew and Gentile. It's a unity between those in the majority, those in the minority. It's a unity between the young and the old. It's a unity between those who are born here and those who are born there, between those whose politics are on the left and those politics who are on the right. It is a unity between rich and poor, between black and white. The one another's of the world are in Jesus Christ someday soon going to be one. And that's good news. And it's news that you and I need not only to hear, but as followers of Jesus Christ to share with our city and with our world. So they were divided one another's, but not for long. Let's look at this first phrase, be subject. What can people who are divided by culture in particular do to participate in this coming unity? Well, St. Paul says, with a single verb, be subject. As I read that and translate his language, what comes to my mind is actually a posture, a physical posture. I, I call it the posture of love. When I read this in the Greek, I think of a bow. It's a posture, isn't it? A bow. It's a gesture. It's a, it's a form of greeting. The New Revised Standard Version translates the word be subject. The NIV translates the word submit. The Contemporary English Version translates the word put others first. The Greek here really means to arrange something under something else, to take something and place it under something else. Take something of value to you and put it under something of value to somebody else. Take something that matters to you and put it under something that matters to someone else. By the way, this is what we do when we bow, isn't it? We, 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 we take our head, I take my head, and I put it under your head. But not just my head, as though this were a physical gesture. It has a kind of a meaning to it. Right? I, I bow, I put my honor under your honor. I bow, and I put my reputation under your reputation. I bow, and I put my judgment under your judgment. I bow, and I put my resources that are at my disposal under the resources that are at your disposal. Be subject to one another, the apostle says. It's a gesture of love. And by the way, if you just look up and see how this chapter has begun, you'll see that Paul intends this to be a fulfillment of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Because in verses 1 and 2, he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. This bow is a posture of love. 
Now, the, the vow brings unity. Uh, for example, it brings unity in marriage. Let me give you an example. I'll have to be careful because Anne's worshiping in this service, but from my own marriage. I mean, it's going to come as a surprise to some of you that a Christian couple could ever have disagreements. <laughs> news, <laughs> newsflash, occasionally it happens. Uh, and I'll give you kind of a tame one. We have a, a car. It's a station wagon. It's a, it's a, it's a blue car. But uh, unfortunately, to Ann, it's a green car. And so, you know, I'll say, hey, let's go to the store. And she'll go, great, what car should we take? And I'll say, let's take the blue car. And she'll say, we don't have a blue car. And, then, and I say, what do, you, what do you mean? And she says, it's a green car. And then psh, we're off the races, and there goes our unity. <laughs> now, one time, uh, Ann and I were meeting with a couples therapist, and uh, this woman gave us an exercise that I want to share with you that, that I think is very helpful. Uh, this therapist said, the only way to understand is to stand under. Think about that. The only way to understand someone is at least for a moment to stand under them. And she said, so you guys each have your truth. It's a small t truth. By the way, she was not a relativist, as though there weren't absolute truth. The observation is just that none of us has clear and complete and authoritative perception of absolute truth, right? You've got your truth, I've got my truth, and this is where oftentimes our disagreements come from. They're not the same truth. And so she says, take your small t truth and just listen to the other person for a moment. Take turns. First, George, it's your turn to put your small t truth under Anne's small t truth, and you're just going to listen to her share her side of the story. Listen to her narrative, okay? And as you listen, don't be defensive. Don't contradict her. Don't interrupt her. Don't try to fit her small t truth into your small t truth. That's not what this is about. Listen for facts, yes, but try to get behind the facts to the feelings because it's oftentimes the feelings that are really driving the conflict. And then switch and allow Anne to stand under your small t truth and watch what happens. And it is a very valuable practice because what follows is empathy, and eventually, unity. Now, some of you are going to wonder, well, well who won? <laughs> this is always the question. Right? What color is the car? Well, I, 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 it actually has a color. That I do believe in large capital T truth as well. Um, what I've learned from some of you who are scientists is that men and women see things differently. Newsflash. Is that a surprise to anybody this morning? Glad you came to church. Men and women see things differently. And what researchers tell us is that men see motion better than women do, which means I'm less likely to get hit by the car. But women see color better than men do, particularly in the center of the light spectrum where we find blue and green, which means Anne is more likely to be able to report to the police the accurate color of the car that just hit me. <laughs> and I have had to admit that our station wagon must therefore be green, <laughs> even though it still looks blue to me. Now, I have parked this car right across the doors right here in our parking lot so that after church, you can go out and decide for yourself. And I will pray for your marriage. This 
standing other, under, this bowing, is not just a practice for unity in marriage. By the way, Paul illustrates it in marriage, just as I did. You notice he's talking about marriage. He will go on to. But actually, for Paul in the letter of Ephesians, family, the unity in the family is meant to reflect the unity in the church, and the unity of the church is meant to reflect this cosmic unity that is coming in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so really why he gives this practice of being subject to one another is because he wants us to live into the unity that is ours already in Jesus. So the bow brings unity to one another's in culture as well. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, many of us are reading this book. I hope all of us will read this book by Dr. John Perkins called one blood. Well, I had the privilege of meeting Dr. Perkins and actually living with him for a summer in L.A. I was part of his first class of interns as he moved to a very blighted neighborhood in Los Angeles, and he taught me how to bow across cultural divides. Uh, I'm Caucasian, obviously. He's African-American. We were both moving into a neighborhood that had Latinos, uh, uh, some Caucasians, majority of African-Americans. Uh, they're all economically in a different strata that Dr. Perkins and I were in. It's a very underserved neighborhood. And so as we walked the streets of our neighborhood together, Dr. Perkins was crossing divides. And uh, I, I learned a lot from him. He would say, George, let's listen. Let's just listen. Let's listen until we can hear people's dreams. What do they? Do? What do our neighbors dream about? And uh, he, he said to me, don't ever ask, how can I help? Because as soon as you ask, how can I help, what you do is you, you put somebody down. You lift yourself up over them as though you're their helper and, and they're sort of destitute without you. And he says, that hurts our neighbor's dignity. He, he might ask me, George, uh, let's go borrow a hammer. And I would say, Dr. Perkins, we have a hammer right here in the tool shed. And he says, George, this is not about our need. It's about our neighbor's dignity. And so we would walk and we'd say, we have a building project. We need a hammer. Do you have a hammer you could loan us? Or even would you like to join us? We could show you some help with what we're, we're building. And that was a way of, of bowing before our neighbors. A, a mutual bow brings understanding. But to understand a different culture, we need to stand under the narrative of that culture. See, some of us see the world as blue. Some of us see the world as green. Some of us see the world as indigo. Different ways of, of talking and eating and thinking. But the challenge of culture is that we oftentimes don't see our own culture. We tend to say, what the heck is water? It's just normal. It's just normal. Our ways are the normal ways of eating and talking and thinking. Well, are they normal or are they just ours? And is it the case that other ways are actually foreign or are they just theirs? I want to invite you today to imagine a world in which we didn't ask questions like, where are you from, as though you don't belong right here. To imagine a world in which we don't say to one another, oh, I don't even see color, as though your ethnic experience doesn't matter to me. To imagine a world in which we didn't live out of constructed notions of whiteness or majority stereotypes. And so your assignment this week, should you choose to accept it, is to bow beneath a divide. It's to find somebody 
who thinks, eats, acts, lives very differently than you do. And to put your small t truth under their small t truth long enough to understand what it is to be them. Bow beneath the divide. When you can repeat back to them their dreams, when you can share back with them the, what it feels like to be them, then you know you have done this. If you're wondering what that might look like, I just offer a little bit of a script. You might say to someone, you know, I'm really curious what your life is like. Would you be willing to share just a little bit of your story with me? And then listen. Don't be defensive. Don't try to contradict. Don't try to fit their small T truth into your small T truth. Just listen, not only for the facts, but for the feelings that are behind the facts. And brothers and sisters, this is what I want to suggest. This is what kindred is all about, and you're already doing it. Just today, uh, you are putting yourself under the preaching of a Caucasian pastor. You're doing it right now. Last week, you put yourself under the preaching of an African-American pastor. Three weeks ago, you put yourself under the preaching of a Chinese pastor. It's already happening. I mean, Kindred is a, a community of people in different churches asking the question, how can we become agents of unity? How can we move out of our church facilities into the world as agents of healing, bringing reconciliation to our neighborhoods, to our city, and to our world? And it's already begun as, as we form kindred small groups, forums, service projects together. Tonight, the celebration, we are bowing to one another, taking up the posture of love. Brian Loritz, who's an African-American pastor down in the Bay Area, says, you know, what are we afraid of? Are we afraid of conflict? Conflict is essential to family. It's essential to unity. If my wife and I did not have conflict, we would not have a healthy relationship. If she were afraid of sharing a dissenting opinion with me, if she were afraid of disagreeing with me, we would not have a healthy family. And so too in the body of Christ, we need to draw the grace of Jesus Christ, his love into our relationship in tangible enough ways for it to be safe, to disagree with one another, to have the conversation, to listen to each other's truth. Kindred is about the posture of love, bowing beneath divisions, be subject, submit, Put others first, the apostle writes. But how? Well, finally, let's come to this third phrase. The Bible says we do it out of reverence for Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ is the one who gives meaning to the bow. He's the one who makes it possible. Remember, God has a plan to gather up all things in him, Jesus. And I think we're here today in church because we believe in capital T truth, but it's just that we believe we can't really fully see that capital T truth until we look into the eyes of Jesus and see him. He is truth. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember what he said to the Father? Not my will, but thy will be done. What is he doing? He's kneeling under the Father's truth. Remember Jesus on the cross the Apostle Paul says, though he was in the form of God, he didn't think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself, even to the point of death, death on a cross. What's he doing? He's hanging on a cross to put himself under you and me, sinners. He's hanging under our sin. And by the way, Paul continues, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, 
Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that's when we see that, that we will have our unity. And then, then and only then that we will truly understand. But how does Jesus bring unity to divided one another's? I think the answer the Apostle Paul provides here is through the Holy Spirit. Again, if you look at your text, please look at verse 18. Paul writes, be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the main imperative. Grammatically speaking, you can't see it in English so well, but grammatically speaking, trust me on this one, be filled with the Holy Spirit is the main imperative from which everything else flows through, through chapter 6. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. The point is that it's the power and the presence of Jesus Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit who makes this being subject to one another safe, wise, and possible. The Spirit of Jesus changes our posture, helps us to be subject. And it's the posture that changes the culture. Notice the cultural features he describes, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. Song, music, it's a cultural expression. It's a new kind of culture that issues forth from this posture. I've been reading this wonderful book, and I don't have time to tell you about it right now, but Peter Oakes is the author. He's a study of Pompeii, trying to understand how the epistle that Paul writes to the Romans should be understood in light of the evidence of what we find in Pompeii. He talks about Rome as an honor culture. By the way, Ephesus is in Asia. There are many honor cultures that are there. And in the context of chapter 12, Paul says to the Romans, love one another with mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, that's another expression of the bow. And Dr. Oak says, you know what? Just imagine this for a second. If I open the door for you as a church person in America today to honor you, it's something you'd hardly even notice. Oh, that's nice. He's polite. And if a master in a house church in Rome in the first century uh, were to ask his slave to open the door, and the slave would open the door for a master, everyone would go, that's totally expected. But if... uh, a master were to open the door for his or her slave, that would be revolutionary. And that, Peter Oakes is saying, is exactly what Jesus is commending in Romans 12 when he says, outdo one another in showing honor. He's speaking to masters as well as to slaves. Honor one another, bow to one another. He's disrupting the social hierarchy because in the Roman honor culture, a free-born male head of household is king but he has been invited off the throne. And so are we. So are we. Let me give you an example of one of our own members, uh, a Caucasian member of UPC, who says she learned grace from an African-American. And it was, I would say, an African-American who bowed beneath division. Her name is Marie, and when Marie was a young girl, she had many facial surgeries and the surgeons had to tie her to the bed to keep her from scratching the stitches off, and it was horrifying. You can just imagine being a child in that situation. Well, one day in came an African-American nurse who bowed before her. Here's how Marie writes. She says, in came a beautiful nurse, her skin cinnamon, mocha, silk, and velvet. She untied me and put her hands under my back. She picked me up and took me to the rocker and held me 
and rocked me. That's a beautiful gesture of care. Now, decades later, Marie found herself back in that same hospital. This time, grown up, she had her own daughter who was ill. And as she walks down the hallway, she sees an elderly woman dressed in white coming towards her. Doesn't recognize her, but this woman stops in front of Marie and looks in her eyes and says, you were one of mine. And Marie has no idea. How could you possibly remember? This was the nurse. And the nurse smiled and said, you never forget one of your own. And brothers and sisters, that's what kindred's all about. You never forget one of your own. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's Jesus' way. It's the only way to unity. The president called for unity and justice. It's not just African-Americans or Chinese-Americans or Caucasian-Americans. The president said, it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And the time for waiting is gone. Now, that was President Lyndon Johnson in 1965. The time for waiting is gone. And I think Jesus Christ, from the right hand of the Father, is looking at us and saying, Enough is enough. My deepest prayer has been that you would be one in this family. I'm not asking you to make the church unified. I'm not asking you to make the church multi-ethnic. It already is. There is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith. I'm just asking you to maintain the unity of the spirit. I have given you my spirit to make you one, eager for that unity to be driven out into the streets of the cities around you, into the neighborhoods, to bring transformation to people's lives, to bring hope to the world. And this is our moment. This is the moment, brothers and sisters, that the church has a gift to give that the culture knows they need. And so I invite you to join me. I invite you to join our sister congregations in an adventure of reconciliation, and it's happening. I heard recently a little report from one of our kindred small groups, and I'll end with this, an elderly Caucasian male and a young Chinese woman bowed beneath the division. As it gathered, this elderly Caucasian looked at her and said, how was your day? And he could see tears beginning to form in her eyes. And this Chinese woman said, it was a really bad day. I lost my job today. And he said, oh, I am so sorry. Tell me what happened. It seems to me that she bowed in her vulnerability to say, I'm not okay. And it seems to me that he bowed in his willingness to listen and offer care and to be able to say something like, you know what, I I, I don't know what you're going through right now, but I do know what it's like to feel worthless. And by the end of that gathering, a circle formed, and this young woman held on her right and her left uh, the hands of the Caucasian elderly man and his spouse, and they circled around Jesus in prayer and in worship. And when the song was done, she wouldn't let go. And again, there were tears in her eyes, but a smile on her face, because Jesus had changed something in that circle. 
And the truth is, not only do we need Jesus to see unity, we need unity to see Jesus. This is where our story ends. A family of every tribe and tongue and people and nation singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When we swim in that water, brothers and sisters, we will finally see the most obvious, important reality, Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We've already confessed the sin of perpetuating division. Now we lay hold of the good news of the gospel. For through your word, you have preached hope to us today, and you have invited us to be agents of hope and reconciliation and unity. So commission us afresh, fill us with your Holy Spirit, give us opportunity. We pray in Christ's name, amen.